Thank you, Vardy. And uh, we actually, we continue our worship, don't we? So we don't just worship in song, in music and song. We also worship in the word as well. So we come before God and we listen to his word. And I've got the privilege of speaking out of the last couple of chapters of Ezra, chapters 9 and 10, if you want to go there. Uh, on your, in your Bibles, on your mobile phones, wherever you have them, you can pull them up on the screen um, I wonder how many of you are experiencing a crisis at this moment in time. Don't have to put your hand up, don't have to open to it, but if you want to, yes you can. Um, how many of you have been through a crisis recently? Yeah, there's a few more. I guess everybody probably in this room has been through a crisis at some time or another. And one of the things I love about scripture is the way it is so human, the way it talks about our humanity, even as the people of God, even for for those in leadership as well. And in this particular couple of chapters, we'll find a crisis, a big crisis, a big crisis for Ezra, who's who's leading what's happening, uh, a big crisis for the people of God. But as we look at this chapter, I want you to realize also that God is on his throne, okay? And he knows. And he knows how to bring his purposes out of a crisis. Amen? So that's encouraging if you're going through a crisis. That God is still on his throne. He still knows you. He still knows how to get you through it and to bring you out the other side. So just a reminder as we look at this last book, last two chapters in Ezra. Uh, There's a graphic coming up, I believe, um, just to show you something, get that big picture in our minds, how God had called uh, Israel to leave uh, Babylon and journey all the way back to Jerusalem. No short journey by any means. And I want you to picture for a moment the vision that they have. They've been in in, uh, Babylon for 70 years. And, um, you know, the prophetic word is released and they they get encouraged, they get visions and they begin to think, wow, you know, there's something great coming up here. And there are volunteers and they go back in different stages. I haven't got time to cover all that, but we've touched on that as we've gone through the series. Anyway, so they journey back to Jerusalem uh, and it takes them about three months or so. And they arrive back in Jerusalem And Jerusalem is a big disappointment. It is not what they expected. They knew something of it, but, I mean, they arrive there and the place is devastated. There's no temple. The walls are broken down. Everything is a mess. And that's where we come to this chapter. And uh, as we do so, if you know, if you've already read 9 and 10, you'll know that it's a controversial chapter. And critics have had a field day with this particular couple of chapters because of what is going on here. But we need to step back from those criticisms and we need to hear scripture in its context before we jump to any conclusions. So let's read, shall we, the scripture. We're going to read Ezra chapter 9 and uh, the verses will come up, I believe. Uh, So Ezra chapter 9 and we read these words. After these things had been done, the leaders approached me and said, the people of Israel, the priests, the Levites, have not separated themselves from the surrounding peoples whose detestable practices 
are like those of the Canaanites, Hethites, Perizzites, Jebusites, Ammonites, Moabites, Egyptians, and Amorites. Indeed, the Israelite men have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons, so that the holy seed has become mixed with the surrounding peoples. The leaders and officials have taken the lead in this unfaithfulness. And when I heard this report, I tore my tunic and robe, pulled out some of the hair from my head and beard, and sat down devastated. I, I want you to if you like, get into Ezra's emotions at this point, to realize what he is thinking and feeling. And everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel gathered around me because of the unfaithfulness of the exiles while I sat devastated until the evening offering. And at the evening offering, I got up from my time of humiliation with my tunic and robe torn, and I fell on my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God. And I said, now, our God, what can we say in the light of this? For we have abandoned the commands you have gave you gave you gave through your servants the prophets, saying, The land you are entering to possess is an impure land. The surrounding peoples have filled it from the end to end with their uncleanness by their impurity and detestable practices. So do not give your daughters to their sons in marriage, or take their daughters for your sons. Never pursue their welfare or prosperity, so that you'll be strong. Eat the good things of the land and leave it as an inheritance to your sons forever. And after all that has happened to us, because of our evil deeds and terrible guilt, though you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserve and have allowed us to survive, should we break our commands again and intermarry with the peoples who uh, commit these detestable practices, wouldn't you become so angry with us that you would destroy us, leaving neither remnant nor survivor. Lord God of Israel, you are righteous, for we survive as a remnant today. And here we are before you with our guilt, and though no one can stand in your presence because of this. And when I read this passage, I mean, I've read it many times before, but when I read it, I was staggered at where Ezra was at emotionally. They have left Babylon and arrived in Jerusalem. The party has gone earlier. And now Ezra has come and he's brought the treasures of the temple and an and edict from the king. And suddenly he's been informed that there's been some intermarrying going on. Marrying to people that God had forbidden when they first entered the land. And this is nothing to do with racism. This has to do with the purpose of God and keeping the seed pure. And Ezra arrives here and he hears these words and it's like he's devastated. We have just spent 70 years in Babylon. And now we're doing the same thing all over again. Will this be the end of Israel? Will this be the end of the purposes of God? And I, I just want us to understand his, his devastation at this moment in time. And that's the word he uses in the, that is used in this translation. He is devastated. 
totally devastated. In fact, I want to tell you this, that when you read this passage, he is so devastated that he is the one who doesn't have the answer. You get to the end of, the end of that chapter, and he doesn't have an answer. I don't know whether you've been through crises like that where something has happened, either something you've done or something somebody else has done. You, you've entered a period of crisis and, and you have been devastated. You have been torn apart on the inside. You know the word of God and you know there should be hope somewhere, but in this particular situation, it seems like that hope has evaporated. That's how it was for Ezra. And here he is in the presence of God, mourning the people's sins, grieving over their sins, wondering about the very future. Does it exist for them at all? And you notice as you go on to, in reading this particular passage that it says in chapter 10, while Ezra prayed and confessed, weeping and falling face down before the house of God, an extremely large assembly of Israelite men, women and children gathered around him. And they also wept bitterly. And then Shechaniah, son of Jeel, an Elamite, responded to Ezra, Ezra, We have been unfaithful to our God, marrying foreign women from the surrounding peoples, but there is still hope for Israel in spite of this. There is still hope for Israel in spite of this. Thank God for the body of Christ. Thank God for people who are not so immersed in the crisis that they can't hear God and can't share God's word with us. And we need people like that around us, don't we? That's why church is important. We need one another. Because sometimes we lose our perspective. Even the most godly of us can lose our perspective and be lost in a fog. And someone comes and speaks the word of God and brings hope into our lives. I want to ask you this morning, do you have people like that around you who can speak honestly the word of God into your life and bring that clarity and bring that hope once again? It is so, so important. That is why we need church. That is why we need one another. And there are, there are two notable verses in, the, in this passage, in these two chapters. And one is there in 9 verse 9 where he says, though we are slaves, our God has not abandoned us in our slavery. He has extended grace to us in the presence of the Persian kings, giving us relief so that we can rebuild the house of God and repair its ruins to give us a wall in Judah and Jerusalem. Wow. And then in Ezra 10 verse 2, there is still hope for Israel in spite of this. Yeah? Don't we need people who can come and speak such hope into our lives when the going is difficult, when we are in positions of despair? And we started off right at the very, very beginning of our meeting singing about the grace of God, about the Redeemer and his grace. And, and actually, these two chapters, and though I have titled it Holy People because that is what it's about, they were not a holy people. They were not the people they should be. And there is a call here to be that holy people for the ongoing purposes of God. And yet also it's a chapter, a couple of chapters about God's staggering grace. And I think we should always keep our eye open for that as we read the word of God. Because I tell you what, I need it. And I'm sure you need it as well. 
It is not about our performance. It is about his amazing grace. And what grace that is. And so to understand what's going on here, we need to, to run a little bit of background perhaps and, and just remind ourselves that Ezra and Nehemiah is about the return of Israel after 70 years in captivity, that they are God's covenant people, not because of anything that is in them, but because of God's grace. They spent 70 years in Babylon for their sin and now in fulfillment of the prophetic words of Jeremiah, words part of which are familiar to us in 29 verses 10 and 11, you know, about God's good purposes, uh, that they have returned some 900 miles, not only to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem and its walls, but to be a prophetic people. But the place is a mess. And so you can imagine their excitement at the vision, but when they get there, there's work to be done, lots of it, and there's opposition, and they're still ruled by a foreign ruler, some freedom, eh? You know? So you can imagine how their thinking is. And so Ezra's concern is about their identity. And we've, we've touched on some of that as we've gone through this series. They've been away 70 years. A measure of uncertainty set in. Their faith is at stake and the, with it the purposes of God. And Ezra and Nehemiah, originally one book, set out to validate the returning Jews as the true Israel by focusing on the fulfillment of Jeremiah's prophecy and the return and the vessels of the temple. And likewise, it's important that we know who we are. It's important that we understand who we are in Christ, that we understand that we are new creations in him. And the New Testament writers uh, set out to affirm this over and over again. And if there's one thing that gets attacked, it is our identity in Christ. Over and over again, the enemy comes at us with things to undermine our identity. Number two, formation. The institution of different practices that would help form them, both individually and corporately. The worship of people of the presence, the word, shaped by the word, people of the book. This is where they, they became to, came to be known as a people of the book. And I, I wonder, could it be said of you that you are a person of the book? Are we a people of the book? We love to expound the word of God here. Confession, prayer, fasting, social justice, sensitivity to the voice of the Spirit, a life of personal and corporate holiness. Ezra is all about rebuilding the community of God based on the re religious realities of the past. And likewise, we also are being formed into a people for his praise and for his glory, into a people who will be a prophetic people speaking to the community around us, speaking to those in our workplaces, in our social connections, and so on. And then we come to the aspect of future hope. In the book of Chronicles, which was written around the same time, the author, quite likely to be Ezra, and I'm inclined to think that's the case, he goes to great lengths to reflect on their past in a way that gives them future hope. He provides a rehearsal of their history, starting with Nine chapters of genealogy. Have you ever read those? And think, why on earth are they in the Bible? I mean, it can sound so boring to us, all those long names you, you've got to try and pronounce. And you're going through nine chapters of them. There is a purpose in Ezra writing in this way. He reminds them of their roots. And likewise, we need to be reminded of our roots. 
We don't just have roots as Gateway Church, but we have roots that go right back into church history and travel all the way back, and I'd love to do some of that and just unpack some of that, how important our church roots are. We haven't just started 20 years ago or whatever. We are part of the people of God that can trace our way all the way back to Jesus Christ and through Jesus Christ all the way back to Abraham. Isn't that a story to to be proud of in the right sense? He speaks about God's promise to David. He speaks of the royal line, Solomon's temple, temple worship, judgment, destruction of Jerusalem, their exile and return, a future king. And in doing so, he focuses on the faithfulness of God rather than the unfaithfulness of various kings. Hallelujah. I'd encourage you to go away and just read afresh Ezra and all the books that connect with it because there's a whole massive story that goes on there, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, 1 and 2 Chronicles, and you think of Zechariah and Haggai as well. And when you begin to read them all together, I mean, there's an astounding picture there. I wonder, then, do we consider the rock from which we have been hewn, our history in Christ? And then we come to witness. They were to be a prophetic voice to the nations, And Chronicles speaks in this way, and it speaks of the the Davidic king and the the hope of a Messiah and all the rest of it. And so they were an amazing people, a people called by God in his grace for a purpose, to be a witness to the nations. But there's this problem right on the table at this moment in time. And Ezra hears about it not long after arriving back into marriage, a failure to separate themselves, all of them. The people, priests, and the Levites, with the leaders and the officials actually taking the lead. This is not a racial issue, but a religious or spiritual one. After all, Joseph and Moses, they had married foreign wives. And we read of Ruth, the Moabitess, who who married Boaz. The problem here was other gods, other practices. It was spiritual adultery. This is about God's call on Abraham, his family, Israel, the nation as the people of God, ensuring their survival, about their genealogical identity. This Messiah was to come from the line of of Judah, from the seed of David. And this this is part of Ezra's despair at this moment in time on hearing this. This is his devastation. God, has is this the end of it? Do we lose all hope at this point? Throughout the Old Testament, God commands the people of Israel to be separate from the people of the surrounding nations. They're not to intermarry with them or to worship their false gods or imitate their practices. You can find a lot about that in Deuteronomy. Why? It's bound up with the holiness of God and the fact that they are his people. Leviticus 20 says this, you shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy, and I have separated you from other nations to be, ni- to be mine. And we find that reiterated also in the New Testament. That it's a New Testament theme as well. New Testament holiness was no different. I must admit that when I grew up, I always thought of holiness as a, a kind of a negative thing. You know, all the things you don't do. But actually, holiness is a very positive thing because it has to do with wholeness. And God is absolutely holy. God is absolutely whole. 
And when we're unholy, we're not as God created us to be. And praise God, Jesus came to deal with that. Paul goes on to talk about the separation. Uh, uh, he says in what, 2 Corinthians 6, 7, Therefore, come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch any unclean thing. You see, there, even in the New Testament church, there was this danger that though they were worshipping Jesus, though they were worshipping the true God through Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit, they were being tempted by other things that would contaminate their spiritual experience, their identity, their purpose. And he, he says, come out from among them, be separate, says the Lord. Don't touch any unclean thing. And he goes on to place that call of separation within the context of the call to holiness. Since we have these promises, he says, let us cleanse ourselves from every impurity of the flesh and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Probably not something we talk a lot about, but it's vitally important. Vitally important. And I want you to notice here that though Ezra is not complicit, he nevertheless identifies with them. He owns their sinfulness himself. And it made me think, you know, do we take sin that seriously as God's people today? Do we tremble at the word like they did here? And so we find Ezra confessing. And I'm a grace preacher, you know that. I love preaching the grace of God, that Jesus died for your sins, past, present, and future. Hallelujah. And I love to preach that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen? Yeah? Some of you are okay with that, but a little bit of uncertainty. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Isn't that a glorious truth? But you know, there are some grace preachers, popular grace preachers out there, who say we do not need to confess our sins. They say if Jesus has paid the price for all our sin, past, present, and future, we do not need to confess our sins. It's all done and dusted. That is true. It is all done and dusted. There are two aspects to, to, to this whole thing. There's the judicial aspect, number one, and the, the other aspect is the, the, um, what we might call the familial or the relational aspect. So, so judicially, in Christ, we are forgiven forever. Hallelujah. We are. We really, really are. Yes. We used to sing a song years ago called, I get so excited, Lord, every time I realize I'm forgiven. Do we? I am forgiven. I am justified in Christ. I'm in a position where I am just as if I had never sinned. Praise God. And if you are in Christ, so are you too. And you can lift your head high. Amen? Yes. But you know, I know that I still sin. And you know that you still sin. Don't look at me so holy. <laughs> hmm? There's an old hymn that we used to sing years ago. 
and probably if you're over 50, you'll remember this one. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Esther knows it. And she's under 50. <laughs> yeah. I know that there are times when my heart is drawn away and I sin. I know that Jesus' blood has covered all my sin. But I also know that in a familial relationship, I need to confess my sin. It's about my growth in Christ. You see, you can apply this to a marriage, you can apply it to a family. In our families, in our relationships, we know that we're loved, we know that we are forgiven, etc., etc. But you know, if your kid comes to you and he's done wrong, and you, you know, one of the things we, we try to get our children to say is, I'm sorry, don't we? And how big a task is that? It's hard, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's, it's really, really hard. But it wasn't me, Mum. It wasn't me, Dad. It was my brother. It was my sister. No, it was you. Yeah? And the nature of sin is we don't like to own up to it. We like to blame somebody else. The problem is if we do not own our sin, we will never grow out of it. Yeah? So if we never confess our sin... And if we never name it, name the thing, and sometimes we as evangelicals can be very good at generalizations and confession. God, I've sinned. Please forgive me. Yeah? And we walk away from it. We have to name it. It says if we confess our sins, that is a particular thing. If we confess, if we name our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Somewhere or other, I need to try and come in and land. So in the midst of this situation, we've noticed that there is hope because God is a God of grace. That God is sovereign in the affairs of mankind. God is true to his word. He keeps his word. God's word holds true. He is merciful and gracious, though sin is still serious. And this story is just a story of staggering grace. God coming in his grace, speaking, and the resolution is found. And I want you to just note as we close on this thought that grace infuses life with hope. Yeah? Grace infuses life with hope. Without grace, I'm stuck. But because God is a God of grace, there is hope. And grace is not a reset button, so God doesn't at this point in time say, oh my goodness, what a mess you lot are. I'm going to get rid of you all. I'm going to start all over again. God is, is not, grace is not a reset button. Grace is something even more unbelievable. It's restoration. And that's staggering because I know numerous times when God has come in his grace and he has forgiven and cleansed me and restored me. And I'm sure you could and there would be many such testimonies in this room. It isn't about undoing. It's about overcoming. Amen? It's not about undoing. It's about overcoming. 
And it is only you with your history that God can use. And God can use your history to make your present and your future. Hallelujah. I'm a perfectionist, and if I, was, if I was God, I would get rid of me that was past and start all over again. You know? And some of us are like that. But God doesn't work that way. God comes in his grace and his mercy. He forgives. He brings that word of hope in. He cleans us up and he sets us on our way again. Isn't that staggering? Do you know him this morning? Do you know him this morning? Yeah. Let's stand. Father, I am staggered at your word whenever I read it. It is so down to earth and yet so heavenly. It speaks of our fallenness and yet it also speaks of your staggering grace. And Lord, that you are a God who is constantly stepping in, redeeming, redirecting and leading us forward. We thank you for the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. And Lord, I pray for any here this morning whose lives are compromised through sin, whether it's in their head or in their practice. I pray, Father, that right now you bring that clarification. They need to deal with it. That holiness is a positive thing and sin is a negative thing. Sin destroys, but holiness renews and revives. So I just pray, Lord, where there are any who may be compromised in their Christian walk at this moment, whether it's through something they're watching, whether it's a secret relationship going on somewhere. Lord, whatever it may be, you'll bring that conviction to bear right now. That conviction that is not condemning, but is grace-filled and extends forgiveness, brings cleansing and hope for tomorrow that it's not over, but you set hope within our hearts through Jesus Christ. Amen. Brilliant. Well, uh, time's almost gone. Just to say...